Hi, welcome to In the Pacha, where I, Sam Reinstein, have conversations about the weekly Torah portion. This week, I have Tal Atia. Hi, Tal. Hey, Sam. How you doing? Good. I'm excited to have you for Parsha Pinchas. Really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, no, you are you are on my list all the way at the beginning. To be honest, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that is so nice. I really, I think I mentioned to you this to you once, but um, the last time I did something like this, I was invited to JM and the AM in high school um, to speak. It was like a one-liner, and my grandmother was telling about it for days. So <laughs> <laughs> fun to do it again. Yeah. For those Tonight. that don't know you, do you mind introducing yourself quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I went to Brewery High School with your lovely wife, Hannah. Um, then I spent a year in Yerushalayim at MMY. I then went to Yeshiva University where I got my uh, bachelor's in psychology, and I met my wonderful husband, Isaac, and we actually just celebrated our fourth wedding anniversary this week. Ooh. Four more years? <laughs> Hopefully many more. Um, yeah. And we, after undergrad, we lived for a handful of years in Yerushalayim. I got my master's in nonprofit management and leadership from Hebrew University. Um, and then uh, after giving birth to our adorable son, Avi, we moved here to Boston, where we are working for OUJLIC at Brandeis. Right. So I, I know um, some people heard this when when my sister um, gave her what was on for Parsha Bar, But do you mind explaining what OUJLIC is quickly? Absolutely. Um, OUJLIC is a program of the Orthodox Union um, in partnership with Hillel. They send rabbinic couples to many campuses across the U.S. and even Canada and Israel um, to help Orthodox students navigate the college environment, balance their Jewish commitments with their interest in the secular world. Um, we host meals, we give classes, we learn one-on-one, -on -one, and uh, we really have a lot of fun. I always say I go on coffee dates for a living, so it's, <laughs> it's a great job. <laughs> yeah, and it's great during the year, and now, now you have some summer vacation kind of. Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, you yeah. know, when you're in a relationships business, you never really totally get off. Like we're always accessible to our students and we're always there for people on a personal level. So you can't just shut that down because it's summer. But, um, right. sure. you know, it's less intense. We're not hosting meals. We're not on campus. So it's definitely a much needed break. Right. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try and do a summary of Parsha Pinchas in a very quick fashion, try for 30 seconds. Uh, these partiot are really hard because there's so much going on in all of them, um, especially um, these last couple ones, Shlach, Korach, um, you know, Balak, uh, Pinchas, all these partiot have so much story involved and Pinchas specifically. Um, so there are some parts I'm like a little sad that we're missing, um, but it is what it is. Absolutely. Um, so, Although if yeah. I were a betting man, I'd say you're probably not going to be able to summarize any Parsha in 30 seconds. So Yeah. Well, so, you know, <laughs> some of them are like, we talked about these Corbano, you know, like it's like fairly <laughs> <That's true>. easier. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So continuing from last week's Parsha, Pinchas had extrajudiciously killed the Jewish leader, Zimri, who was sinning with, in the camp with the Moabite woman. God praises him and gives him and his descendants the priesthood. There is another sentence, census, and the land of Israel will be divided among those counted. Levi is then counted as well. The daughters of Slavgad complained that their father, who had passed, had no sons and would therefore lose his portion in the land. God grants them their request. 
Moshe is then taught about the laws of inheritance. God tells Moshe to climb the, to, the type, to the top of a mountain from where he would see the promised land before he died. Apropos, Moshe is then commanded to grant Yoshua as his successor. Lastly, we learn of the twice daily sacrifices, the sacrifices for Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, and the holidays. Ooh, okay. Wow, really is yeah. fact. Yeah, there's lots going on. Um, so oh, yeah. um, I'd love to hear um, like which which part of the of the portion of the parsha um, you'd like to uh, focus on. Okay, well, I'm actually I picked up on the first the first topic yeah. in the parsha, actually borrowing a little bit from last week's parsha, um, the topic of Pinchas um, and Zimri and his uh, zealous behavior, his act of zealotry. Um, I th- figured we could talk a little bit about that topic and explore what it means to be zealous and not to be confused with jealous or maybe to be confused with that. We'll see. Um, give a few possibilities, discuss a few possibilities for what it means, kind of draw from other sources in the Torah to learn a little bit about that term, um, and then understand the pros and the cons of that um, that character trait, if you will, um, right. and then discuss what I think is probably the most interesting question here, which is, was Pinchas in the right? Um, did he act morally correctly? Um, so with that, should I jump into yeah. it? Yeah, let's jump in. Okay. So as you so nicely summary, summarized, um, last week's Persia had us um, viewing Pinchas um, as he brought a um, plague to an end, a plague that was that had struck the Jews. 24,000 Jews had already died, and Pinchas seized the initiative and stabbed and killed um, Zimri and a Midianite woman for um, their act of immorality, their flagrantly public act of immorality. Um, bringing us into this week's Parsha, after this happens, um, Pinchas is kind of rewarded for this act of zealotry, um, and the Parsha actually describes him as kind of replacing God's, the need for God to be zealous. Um, It actually says, um, meaning God says, because you, Pinchas, were so zealous, you saved me from having to be so zealous and destroying the Jews in all that zeal. Um, So it seems... And that's chapter 25, verse 11. Right, exactly. Um, And that's right at the onset of our Parsha. So Pinchas is kind of being, it seems like a positive statement about his, you know, his zealousness. Um, And what's interesting is, do you know that there are only two people in all of Tanakh who were referred to as zealots? Do you know who they are? Mm. Um, I mean, there are definitely people like much later on in Jewish history that are called Kanaim. Uh, who right. I don't know. Okay, so well, Pinchas is one of them. Um, right, the right. other one is Eliyahu. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it is interesting. And actually, Chazal pick up on this, and what they they do is, I mean, in their kind of, in a very typical form for Chazal, they just say, Pinchas who Eliyahu. Pinchas is Eliyahu. And I don't think they mean he's literally the same person, but I think they're kind of drawing on that parallel of, you know, they both acted in some sort of zealous way that kind of defined them as people, right. um, define their character. So as I mentioned before, one of the big things that we have to figure out before we can really jump into this is what does it mean that Pinchas was a zealot? What does Kinnah mean? Um, 
And one step further, and this is where I think things get interesting, is do we believe that taking the law into your own hands and committing murder in the name of God or instead of God, is that something that, you know, we believe in? Is that something that's ideal? I mean, it sounds kind of displeasing to the modern ear, right? Could you imagine if someone were to do that today? Right. I mean, I I think on some level, right, though, cannot mean, I mean, just just on like without thinking about it too much, right? Cannot him here just means him being zealous and just going out and doing it and God rewards him for doing it. Uh, right. So yeah, so, it, it's definitely troubling on some level, at least on a purely shot level without thinking about it too hard, um, which I assume we're doing next. Um, but um, <laughs> it seems like the Torah is very happy with what happened um, on its face. Right, right, very much so. It's, and I just have to say, just kind of taking this a little bit meta for a second, um, as part of our anniversary celebration, Isaac and I went to see The Incredibles 2. And oh, nice. um, one of the discussions, without, without any spoilers, um, one <laughs> of the discussions that we came out having was, you know, are, is there a place in the world for vigilantes, for superheroes mm-hmm. who are kind of acting, you know, above and beyond what normal enforcement law enforcement does or can do and is that something that we think of as ideal um so that's kind of that's a common thread throughout the avengers as well yes right it's it's very it's definitely a superhero theme all these superheroes who you know they're able to do these amazing things and sometimes with that comes a lot of um anarchy right because they're not following this normal set of laws what they're doing is taking their superpowers and living by their own standards um and on the one hand, they're doing a lot of good, but on the other hand, it kind of makes us wince. So that's the that's on the agenda for for Pinchas for today. So, so with, let's jump into a few definitions of kina, try to figure out what it means, look at other Torah sources, and kind of just get a sense of what it means that Pinchas and Eliyahu, these two unique characters in Torah, were called um, zealots. So right. if you had to guess... Just throw something out there. What comes to mind when you hear the word kina? I mean, just, it's like these type of things. It's like just going out and doing something. So um, someone without, taking like, initiative? Yeah, taking initiative, and but not always, I, I guess not always in like such a positive way. Like I'm thinking more like second temple period, like the the Kanaim that like mm-hmm. wanted to fight the Romans and didn't want to, uh, didn't want to agree with them, like, like there's some negativity, um, there's some negativity with it where it's like sometimes it can be overboard as well. Um, but I mean, here it's definitely a good quality. I mean, it seems like it's a good quality. It seems it definitely seems like it's a good quality. Yeah. But you're right. There it tends to be throughout the Torah when kina is invoked as an attribute. Um, it's not always in the positive realm so i'll throw out one definition that's not exactly what you were saying but it definitely okay. plays on that negative vibe um and that is jealousy um and this might seem obvious to you once i kind of jump into an example um in the story of rachel and leah when you know rachel is desperate to have children and leah is <laughs> popping them out the psukim actually say um and rachel saw that she hadn't given any children to yaakov and rachel was jealous of her sister mm. right so this is actually a very famous example of the use of uh, kuf nun alif that 
shoresh. Um, I mean, it simply means jealousy. And I think when you think of jealousy, you don't think of that as necessarily a positive thing. Right. Um, but what's interesting is that there's actually another example of of kinna being used to mean envy, but not necessarily negatively. Um, and that is in Kohelet, where it discusses that it discusses basically the free market and how um, I'll, I can read the Pasuk. Um, um, I've noted that all labor and skillful enterprise come from man's envy of each other, right? So you have competition in business. If you have a monopoly, then, you know, nobody really right. wins from that. But when you have people who are kind of envious of each other and trying to compete to, for the better business, for the better quality, um, that can contribute to a better market. Um, of course, in classic Kohela style, all of that is futile. But um, <laughs> but it's not inherently something that is, is you know, a negative use of the word envy, but it's still defining kinna as envy. So that's one definition of kinna. Right. Um, but there are others. So a second possibility would actually be, and I think you were kind of picking up on this before, um, anger, fury, vengeance, vengeance even. Mm. Um, and that's what Rashi has to say about our Pasuk um, in Bamidbar. He says about Pinchas that he acted... Um, he acted with zeal that he took God's revenge, right? He was filled with this anger and he sought to put it into action. And then Rashi actually says that every language of kinna indicates a feeling of anger prompting um, some sort of vengeance. So um, again. And, and does he go, he doesn't go through explaining why, like in each of the examples. Um, he he, just says, no, he doesn't seem to explain why that is. Um, but I think that, you see it in Pinchas's actions, perhaps if we're defining it that way, that it's kind of this, he's like called to action. He sees something that's happening and it's infuri infuriating for him, right? Like the right. Jews are dying from this terrible plague and, um, and he's in the position to stop it. And this like fury kind of washes over him and he, he acts on it. Right. Um, so what's interesting is that when you think about it in terms of vengeance, this shows up in another place, which is by the Ten Commandments. Um, do you know what one of the names of God is in the realm of Kenna? Uh, like, like, right, Kelkana, right, that right, he's, exactly. a, right, he's a vengeance God. Exactly, Kelkana, um, which is kind of an interesting thing because we don't, I, I, in the 21st century, we don't like to think of God as, you know, a vengeance God, right. but that is how he's referred to. Um, and what's also interesting there is that it's, it doesn't stop there. It describes God as kind of taking vengeance for negative behavior, but then it follows up the mitzvot right? That God also shows kindness and, um, and that this is something that he, he'll, He'll reward good behavior as well as kind of taking vengeance on bad behavior. Um, so those two are very connected to each other. Hmm. Um, but I don't want to stop there. I think there's a third option for what kinna might mean. Okay. So, so far we have jealousy and um, vengeance. 
and vengeance, right? Um, so the third option here is we're actually going to kind of go way outside of anything we've been talking about and jump to the topic of the Sota, um, okay. the unfaithful wife or right. the accused wife. It's probably right. more accurate. Um, and the Pesukim describe that when a husband suspects his wife of being unfaithful to him, um, he is kind of taken over by this spirit of kina, ruach, um, ruach kina. Let me find the exact pasuk for you. It's ve'avar um, alav ruach kina ishto. Um, and Safaria's translation was that this fit of jealousy comes over him, but I actually don't think that that's accurate. Um, do you have a, a kind of right. guess? I, I mean, to me, it almost sounds like it's a mix between the two things, right? It's it's he's jealous, but he's also angry, and right. like it's like this like fit of negative emotions, right? And to take that one step further, where is that coming from? He's what is he jealous or angry about his wife being unfaithful, which is what a breach of what? Uh, I'm not sure if it's you mean it's a breach of trust. Um, it's, but it's also it's also like embarrassing, I imagine. So it's embarrassing and it's a breach of trust because both because there's an expectation of exclusivity. Right. Um, a husband. And what's interesting is when we talk about God as the Kalkana back at the Aserta Dibrod, as we mentioned before, mm -hmm. um, it's actually referring to him that way in the context of commanding us, the Jews, not to serve Avodazara, not to have any other gods, not to have a relationship right. with any other god. So you have, um, it's really the same, the same story in both cases, right? It's this exclusive right. relationship, whether that's in marriage, whether that's, um, you know, in our sexual relationships, or whether that's in our theological relationship, in our relationship with God, we're supposed to be totally exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, now, what I, where I think this gets really interesting is that when it came to Pinchas, um, Pinchas did not just end a sexually immoral relationship that was happening, um, but the Midianite women were actually there to seduce the Jewish men into doing a Bodhisattva, right? They were right. there kind of to bring them into Balpaor. Um, so to we make have, them serve idols. Right. right, to make them serve idols. So you have both um, types of infidelity at risk here, both you know, the sexual and the, mm -hmm. and the theological. Um, so that is the kana'ut, the, the, um, the zealotry, if you will, that Pinchas kind of acts on um, and that he, he seeks to preserve. Um, so I think that that's, that's kind of an interesting perspective and it's more than just the, you know, the one-toned jealousy or one-toned anger, but it's really this complex um, attribute of his and something really sacred that he's trying to preserve in killing Zimri. Um, right. So his, his essentially he's seeing like in God not having, or these people not having an exclusive relationship with God and also not having an exclusive relationship with their own spouses, presumably. Right. And um, he's coming in and God therefore approves of this message um, be, and but not because he's just being vengeful but right. because he's keeping the Jewish people exclusive to God right exactly he's kind of saying 
uh-uh, we had a commitment to one another, right? We said we were going to be exclusive to each other, um, and and God doesn't actually act on this because Pinchas almost beats him to the punch, if you will. But that's exactly what's being saved there. It's not it's not just God being jealous, and it's not just Pinchas being angry, but it's actually something bigger um, going on there. But I think the big question, you know, now that we've kind of defined what was happening, um, is was he in the right? Right. If um, if we say that Pinchas was preserving that exclusivity, is that something that we should all be doing? Should we all be, right. you know, going around stabbing people in order to preserve our exclusive relationship with God? So, what right. would you say, Sam? I mean, I think we can safely say <laughs> the answer is no to that. Um, right. But right. but, but Pinchas is praised for it in this moment. Yeah. You know, Pinchas is praised. Right. So Pinchas is praised. And I think that's where things get a little bit confusing or, you know, maybe not confusing, but where we have to kind of push the question a little bit. We see the Pesukim kind of calling him a hero um, and God himself, even outside the context of this, we call God a zealot. We call him the Kelkana multiple times throughout the Torah. Um, and I don't think we're saying that in a negative way. So in some ways, it seems, you know, like the Torah is referring to this trait of zealotry, especially in Pinchas, um, as being a positive thing. Um, and yet, on the other hand, if you were to go back to our original Pesukim, um, back at the beginning of our Parsha, after God is called, uh, God, after Pinchas, I'm sorry, is called um, a zealot, he's also given this covenant of peace, right? It says, um, this covenant of peace and what's interesting is i'm not sure that that's in a word so much as a it's a little kind of i don't know a slap on the wrist like you shouldn't need Mm. to be um doing acting like this right i want you to live in peace from now on right i Um, almost need to make you um like chill out like i'm gonna give you this special like i'm gonna put you in this special place to like make you chill out it's almost like the um like the person in the back of the class that's like all fidgety so you give them like a task to do right right very much so so it it doesn't necessarily seem even though he's praised it doesn't seem like it's kind of this unfettered praise it seems like it kind of comes along with something and then i'll just add to that that um there's actually a huge talmudic discussion about whether you know pinchas was in the right and whether what he did was halachic um and part of that debate amongst chazal is you know what would have happened if pinchas had done it done his act a minute later if he had killed zimri right after um the infidelity took place or Um, what it, what would have happened if Pinchas had gone to gone to Sanhedrin and said, you know, do I have permission to go and do this? Um, and in all of those cases, what the um, what the Talmud tells us is that this is something called halacha v'en morin morin kin, right? The, it's halacha, but we don't teach it this way. Meaning, what he did was right in this moment, but we would never codify this as an ideal law for all time. Mm. Because it might have made sense then, but it uh, it's not something that usually makes sense or would make sense in the vast majority of cases. Right, exactly. And um, and if we were to kind of build it into our legal system, I mean, the results could be catastrophic. Um, right. And I, uh, Rev. Jonathan Sachs actually talks about this beautifully. He says that um, he had some beautiful language about this. Um, 
that the that only Pinchas, um, that, sorry, that Pinchas acted in a way that really he was playing God. Only God knows, you know, how to execute sentence without a trial, right? Because if you think about what Pinchas did, he really he sentenced somebody to death without putting them on fair trial. Um, and um, Riff Sachs actually says, zealotry is a course of action fraught with moral danger. Um, mm. Which I Right, so he was like almost right, but it was risky and he could have been wrong. Yeah, it was risky. And I think more than that, it's a slippery slope. So maybe in that yeah. moment and for that action and maybe given who Pinchas was and you know the wisdom and insight that he had, what he did was right. But if we were to kind of scale that out, we'd be in big trouble. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, that gave me a, like a ton to think about <laughs> on so many levels, you know, like about what kinah means, about whether or not it's good, about whether or not it was good in this case, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, I'll just, if but, I may, I'm yeah. just going to point out yeah. one last thing. You mentioned in your summary of the Parsha that the Parsha ends with um, Moshe appointing the next leader, Yehoshua. Yeah. And it's kind of striking when you think about the fact that the Parsha started out with Pinchas, you know, taking initiative and doing something that saves the Jewish people. And, you know, this plague ends and he really, he saves the day. And then the Parsha ends with not him, but Yehoshua being named the leader. Um, right. And that's really fascinating. And again, Rosex refers to this and says that, um, Pinchas could not have been the next leader because a leader requires, quote, patience, forbearance, respect for due process. Um, uh, so Pinchas might have been right. right in the moment, but there needed to be someone there who didn't, you know, wasn't throwing executive orders around. Um, so it's just a, it's right. an interesting thing that happens there. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah, that's that's like the perfect tangent, uh, the perfect segue to what I'm, I was going to talk about because I was going to talk about Yoshua's appointment. Because from my perspective, this happens really quickly. It happens all of a sudden. God just tells Yoshua to like choose a leader, and he does. Um, and but it's Yoshua who like seemingly gets everything wrong um, through until now. Like he's he's a good like general, like against Amalek and stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. that's good. But he goes up to the mountain, and t- and Moshe asks him what's going on. Um, he tells Moshe, like, I think it sounds a war. And Moshe's like, no, you're wrong. It's they're doing the golden calf. Um, he, a couple partial before, Eldad Amidad, he goes and tells Moshe, these people are prophesizing in the camp. That's not cool. And Moshe's like, no, that's great. Everything's awesome. And so Yoshua kind of just doesn't see. Right. He's the bearer of bad news, but he's always wrong. You know, like he just keeps on trying to tell Moshe, like, this is what's happening. And Moshe keeps on being like, um, okay, young son here, you know, like, um, that's not really what's happening. Good try. Um, but like, it just doesn't seem to me to be like the leader. Hmm. And so, um, and it's specifically interesting of how he's, uh, how he's talked about when he, when he's chosen, um, God tells them. God tells Moshe um, to put his hands on on Yoshua, which he does, obviously. Um, bring him in front, front and it says, "Vinatata um, meodecha." In twenty seven twenty, you should give from your glory. And there's a famous Rashi. He's quoting from the Midrash. Says, "You only give him part of your glory." Um, because Moshe was like the sun and Yoshua was like the moon. That the face of Moshe radiated like the sun and and the face of Yoshua radiated like the moon. 
So I wanted to talk about, uh, talk just one minute, what in the world that's talking about, because like there is this idea of like Moshe's face, like radiating like a sun. Um, but like, what does it mean that, right, Karen or, right, exactly, that's this. Um, but like where um, that gets mistranslated into like horns, um, okay. unfortunately. Um, but Yoshua's face is like the moon is like a very weird, like, what does that even mean? Like, does he have that smile that, like, the man on the moon has? Like, what what, what are we talking about? Well, I guess what uh, I think so, about when I hear that is just, I mean, I hope I'm not kind of stealing no, your thunder here, but I think about I the way that the moon, the moon doesn't have its own inherent source of light, right? It only reflects the sun's light. Right. Um, so that's the, from what I understand, that's, like, the traditional understanding of this midrash, um, and it's the one art scroll, right? So like if you look at your blue art scroll, it's what's on the bottom. Um, the thing is, is that like, I don't know, like Yoshua has his own stuff. And also every other person would be, would be like the moon, right? Like every, anyone would be like the moon. Pinchas would be like the moon. Like any, everyone's a, a student of Moshe, right? Every, everyone would be like the moon. Um, so I heard from Rabbi Chaim Angel, who's a teacher at Yeshiva University in Bible, um, that he argued something different, and it's based on um, um, and it's based on some archaeology about like what the moon means um, in like ancient cultures. But the a, a major difference um, between the moon and the sun is that one you can look at and one you can't. Um, so like the sun isn't really attainable. Um, it's not really something you can connect to because you can't look at it. At least you're not supposed to. Um, but the moon is something you can look at, you can stare at, you can like think about what it looks like. You can really relate to the moon in a way you can't relate to the sun. You can only feel what the sun like is radiating. Hmm. So on some level, Moshe is like, you can feel Moshe's existence, but you can't relate to Moshe. Yoshua, you can actually relate to that's, that's and actually so, it, and it explains the pasuk because the the way you explained it and the way article explains it doesn't explain how that has to do with and you should give from your glory, but this kind of does um, because like Moshe is only giving Yoshua enough to like be able only giving Joshua like enough to be like like really great but not something that the Jewish people can't relate to anymore. Right, and, and I think part of the reason either, right? Because we know that Moshe's right. face was too blinding for anyone to look at him. So right. it's not, it's not exactly. that, you know, intimidating or I'm not sure exactly what it, we're supposed to take away from the fact that Moshe was blinding, but. Right. I think that's the idea is that we couldn't relate to Moshe. We couldn't look at Moshe because we couldn't like imagine us being him. Like we looked at Moshe and that was just like a different being almost. Obviously wow. he's a person, but like, but Yoshua, we looked at and we're like, yeah, that's another person. He gets stuff wrong. He's a great general, but like he gets stuff wrong, just like everyone else does. And that's that. in some way like nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's really, I mean, even just in the line of work that we're in, we talk about all the time that something, it's just as important to model for our students that we make mistakes as it is to model that, you know, we work hard and we give good shearing, but we oftentimes we make mistakes and we highlight those because we think that right. it's important for them to see that we're not perfect. Um, so I love that. Right. And you're, not, kind and of you're, not, you're not trying to pretend to be perfect and you're not trying to right. imagine that you even should be. Right. Right. I love that. Right? Like that's not even a goal. 
Um, so it, what does I, that mean, yeah. though, then, that Moshe, who's kind of like the, the father of Torah or, you know, the person that we look to as the originator of our Mosor, what does it mean that he is projected as perfect? Yeah, so I, I think on some level, like it was important for that in that moment when like everything was unclear, we weren't a nation yet, we were still growing to have like a leader that was like up there and we all idolized. And I think there are a lot of companies that are like that. When companies start, it's like important to have like a Steve Jobs that everyone's like, oh my God, Steve Jobs is amazing. Um, But like, it's almost more important that the next person um, tries not to replicate that, Um, tries not to say like, I'm going to be just as awesome. Instead, it's like, no, I'm going to try and integrate everyone else. I'm going to try and move company or the people forward and not just keep them in the state where like we need this really important leader it's like no it shouldn't it shouldn't that's not sustainable in the long term and so he doesn't but yoshua is sustainable in the long term that's that's really interesting i mean i think what i think that actually works you know works really nicely when you think about a lot of the uh, trials and tribulations that yoshua goes through in his time as a leader a lot of them parallel things that moshe went through right like the the yardane splitting you know when the jews had to pass into into israel and they had to go through the jordan river they had to walk through water kind of the same way that moshe had to lead the jews through um through the dead sea um, so you have yeah. these, and that's just one example, but there are so many parallels in terms of what they experienced as leaders. But then I think, like you're saying, the direction they took them in was so different. And Yeshua was so much and, more down to earth in a way. Yeah. And from the Jewish people's perspective, right, there's one, the Jewish people act differently towards the two leaders. There's one main difference hmm. um, that, can you think of it? I'm or, trying to think. I mean, right now, all I'm thinking yeah. about is, the Jewish people kvetching to both of them all the time. Right? They kvetch so much to Moshe, but they never complain to Yoshua, like ever. That's that's true. <laughs> like they kind I'm of do at I just a little bit, but that stops because you know who really complains? Like Yoshua complains to God right. Right. Um, when they lose a battle. And I think the reason why is they like Yoshua relates to them and they relate to Yoshua. And so they know Yoshua is going to complain on their behalf. If they don't have water, Yoshua is on it. Yoshua is like, oh, I'm thirsty. Jewish people must be thirsty. But like Moshe was like on this high plane that like they didn't trust Moshe to like look out for them almost. Right. Um, they didn't trust Moshe to have the same issues as them. So they complained to Moshe, but they don't complain to Yoshua because they know like he's, the, he's one of us. You know, that's that's so interesting. I think, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, this is kind of reminding me of the Chet HaEgel, right? When they make that golden calf, it's like it wasn't against God. It was against Moshe. They wanted this tangible figure in their midst that, you know, could lead them because Moshe was off somewhere up in heaven. Right. So that's I think they might have been itching for that all along. And Yoshua was, you know, the first person to come in and actually fill that role in a way that that made sense. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just an important thing for us all to think about is like, I think so often everyone tries to be perfect and tries to be amazing and tries to have everyone look up to them, but maybe that's not really the goal. Like maybe we should all like the goal really should try to be more like Yoshua and less try to be like Moshe and like try and lead through just example, like being there for people, like, um, you know, just connecting to people on their level, 
um, which is what Yeshua does really well, um, and not trying to like, you know, be on this super high plane um, to try and like raise people up with us. Obviously, we can do that a little bit, which Yeshua does, but like not as your full goal. Yeah, I love and that. I, yeah, I think, and I think that applies to more than just rabbis and you know people doing JLIC. Um, <laughs> it's like applies to. Um, also rabbis, I guess. Um, but like, uh, you know, I think it applies to parents. I think it applies yeah, definitely. to like, just, just like, just like friends even, you know, like don't, you don't, sure. you can just try and like connect with people and like, be human. Uh, be human. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Oh, such a good takeaway. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Um, so yeah, the, um, this whole thing gave me a lot to think about. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank um, you. Sorry, so, sorry so about some of the technical things. These. Uh, I yeah, hope I hope the they're only figuring out about this now, figuring out about that now. Uh, and um, and uh, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Sam. Okay. Yeah. For those listening, um, just pay attention for the next episodes of In the Pacha for Matot Masay.